This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello again, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for about 27 years now, and that's how long I've practiced as a psychologist. I love what I do, and I started podcasting in order to extend the walls of my practice. I wanted to reach out to those of you who might be in therapy already or certainly very interested in psychological and emotional issues, to those of you who have just been diagnosed with depression or anxiety and you're looking for answers. And then there's a third group, to those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist, but you're just interested enough to listen to someone like me. Welcome, whatever group you're in or some other group you might be in. Today, I'm getting kind of personal with you. It's about getting lost in a relationship. If you've ever done it, you know the sinking feeling in your gut that comes with thinking about it again. This certainly happened to me, so I will talk a little bit about my own experience. Somehow yourself, the you that you knew before the relationship began, that self got ignored, changed, forgotten, absorbed, or even ridiculed. People say things like, I don't know who I am anymore. There are lots of reasons why this can happen. Actual abuse, manipulation by someone with narcissistic traits or other disorders, being lied to and deceived, doing all the giving and very little receiving. I could go on and on about the why. But today in this episode, once again, sponsored by BetterHelp, we're going to be talking about picking up the scattered pieces of yourself and putting you back together again, but in a new and hopefully wiser way. Our listener email for today is from a man whose wife displays many of the traits of perfectly hidden depression, but he doesn't know how to approach her. And he's also wondering about how perfectionism could be viewed through the lens of attachment theory. What attachment theory is, is a theory that basically assesses the kind of relationship or attachment a child had to their primary caregiver. There are three types, could be avoidant, anxious, or secure, or some variation of those. Now, if you're interested in having an extra $7 hanging around, I've included a test that I found on Psychology Today where your attachment style can be evaluated. I have no financial relationship to the people who actually designed this test. I just thought I'd tell you about it. And the link will be in the show notes. So today, let's sit back and talk about getting lost in a relationship and, as always, what you can do about it. I shared in the intro that this particular podcast episode is really very personal for me. I well remember, painfully remember, the constant arguing that occurred in my relationship with my second husband. It's really not important what the arguments themselves were all about, but I had quite the revelation after my divorce about what had happened to my self-esteem in the process of that seven-year relationship. It was in the tank, gone. If I hadn't been in graduate school during that time, where at least I was doing well academically, I'm not sure what would have happened. I'd had to stand up for myself so much, fighting with him about whether or not I had value, that I realized after the battling was over that I wasn't really sure if I had value or not. It was almost in the fighting with him 
that I was trying to convince myself. So I wondered if maybe he'd been right. Did I actually still believe in myself or my own worth? Frankly, I was far from sure. A decade of making chaotic decisions in relationships had taken their toll on me. For you see, he had been only one of the relationships I'd chosen that had given me the message that I wasn't worth much. So, at the age of 33, I had to start over again. I needed time to heal and get to know who I was now and wanted to be following the aftermath of hurt. One of my best friends and I met during this time, literally one month after my second divorce. She now teases me a bit when she smiles and reminds me how much I said I was sorry when we first met. I mean, I said it all the time. It was the first thing out of my mouth when I felt insecure about anything, and at the time, that was a lot. So it was during that time in my life when I had to rebuild myself from the pieces of it that were laying around the floor, sort of Humpty Dumpty style. I wanted to use that pain to create a better version of me. I'd been in therapy off and on, but this time, I found a therapist that helped me face my failure. Now, as a therapist myself, I see people do this all the time. They make a decision, whether it's to confront an addiction, face a fear, or try something that's a real challenge. How to build back, or maybe for the first time, build a you that you like, that you trust. That when you put your head down on your pillow at night, you feel good about at least something you did or were or said or tried. But you're creating a direction in your life where you sense you can thrive, where you can see your vulnerabilities, what you still need to work on. But there are parts of you that you like, that you believe have value. Inherent in my own path was the journey to become a psychologist. And there were so many lessons to learn. But there were experiences that would show me how my way of looking at relationships especially and my role within them wasn't healthy. Here's a great example. One of the first people I ever saw was a young man who was in his (laughs) mid-twenties. I've actually often prayed I did him no harm. Let's call him Kurt. Kurt was describing his relationship to me about how he and his girlfriend would fight. He described several things, but especially once... He'd shown up at her apartment around 2 a.m. and banged on her door, screaming at her to open it. And when she did, he pushed her toward his car so they could talk. She begrudgingly got in. And when the fight got worse, she, for some reason he couldn't understand, as insight was not something he had, she opened her door and ran into her apartment, locking him out. So I was talking to my supervisor about Kurt and some other things we'd discussed. But then she came back and asked me, So what did you say about the domestic violence? I suddenly felt numb. I sheepishly realized that I'd said nothing about it. Nothing. Because to me, it wasn't violence. My perspective was so far off, I was completely missing what was one of the most obvious parts. Kurt's lack of respect and not taking responsibility for his actions or his impact on her. I was very embarrassed and made up something to cover, although I'm sure I didn't cover well at all. I obviously needed to restructure what I believed was appropriate and healthy communication. I had to recreate my own boundaries in a very clear way, so I could trust my own listening and my own gut. For when people have been living in chaos, they don't see it as chaos. They become immune to it and often will recreate it in their relationships with others. 
What I realized through my own therapy was that I'd gotten derailed many years before my second marriage even got started. I began to piece together the hows and whys of how that all happened. There were some childhood and family patterns that had contributed to my seeing the world not as it was in reality, but how I wanted to see it, how I needed to see it. I could see how I'd bent over backwards to avoid responsibility due to shame I didn't want to admit was there. But as I disentangled all of that, I could also see the parts of me that had been trying to emerge. I could see glimpses of a more emotionally mature person, someone who could accept mistakes and go on. For those of you who've been listening for a while, you know that I love to pull ideas from articles from other psychologists or basically other people that I think speak well. And I found an article this time by Dr. Guy Winch. He's a three-time TED Talk speaker who also has a podcast of his own, Positive Psychology. He talks about building a sense of worth. But right now, here's a message about a great offer to you from BetterHelp. I was delighted when BetterHelp reached out to me as a potential sponsor. What exactly is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is an online therapy service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not really self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. I also tried this out, of course, for my self-work listeners, and I was very impressed with the two counselors I tried. There's a broad range of expertise, and you're actually matched to the therapist that they believe will work best for you. You can have video sessions, phone sessions, you can text, and actually it's much less expensive than quote-unquote normal therapy. And BetterHelp is rated number one by so many platforms that specialize in trying to help you find the best therapy online for you. There's a special offer for self-work listeners where you get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com slash self-work. That's trybetterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash self-work. You can begin getting help today, and I highly recommend it. So give it a try. So how do you build your own sense of value, your own sense of worth and self-esteem? Dr. Guy Winch, who I said before the advertisement, is a really well-known speaker. In fact, he's done three TED Talks, and he talks about five steps to build your self-esteem. Let's go over them, but I'll add in my own two cents. First, he says, number one, use positive affirmations correctly. I really thought this was an interesting point. I'm going to quote him for a second. Positive affirmations such as, I'm going to be a great success, are extremely popular, but they have one critical problem. They tend to make people with low self-worth feel worse about themselves. Why? Because when our self-esteem is low, such declarations are simply too contrary to our existing beliefs. I think this is so interesting because really, those kinds of generic affirmations really only work with one kind of person, people who already believe in themselves. So when you're working on your self-esteem, you have to change those and, as he says, tweak them to make them more believable. And he gives this example, instead of, I'm going to be a great success, you say, I'm going to try really hard or persevere until I succeed. I know you can hear the difference. You know, I think this is very important because of its very backfire potential. You don't want to make mantras out of things that aren't doable. You don't want to make affirmations for something that you wish 
you had control over, but you don't. Not in that moment. Let's take the example again of I'm going to be a great success. You really can't create that in this moment. But what you can do is persevere. You can keep trying, right? So you want to make your positive affirmations about things that are doable and over which you have some control. And then you work like hell to get it done, right? Right. His number two is to identify your competencies and develop them. What he means here is that if you don't use something you do well, if you don't use that ability or create opportunities for it to grow, then you're wasting that competence. He says, for example, if you love to cook and you're good at it, throw dinner parties. Or if you're a pretty darn good runner, then try your hand at a marathon. But here's my two cents. Many people cannot even write down one thing they feel competent at doing or being. And if you can't write those down, you can convince yourself that you must not have any competencies. I'd like to suggest that what you don't have is practice allowing yourself to own your own competence. Maybe you think that's self-centered or not humble. Maybe you're very insecure. But maybe you simply need practice to figure out and write down what at least one competency that you have is. You want to own that competency. Quoting Dr. Winch again, self-esteem is built by demonstrating real ability and achievement in areas of our lives that matter to us. In short, figure out your core competencies and find opportunities and careers that accentuate them. Put much more simply, what you do well, you want to grow. You want to let it show. You want to create chances for that to be what you're doing with your life. Here's his third statement. You learn to accept compliments. This is actually in my book as one of the exercises. I think it's just like the fifth or sixth one. I think this is so important. I'll quote him again. One of the trickiest aspects of improving self-esteem is that when we feel bad about ourselves, we tend to be more resistant to compliments, even though that's when we most need them. So set yourself the goal to tolerate compliments when you receive them, even if they make you uncomfortable, which they will. You can even practice a, a response like a thank you or that's so nice of you to say and just say it over and over again. Again, my two cents, this takes practice. Let's say you're having a bad hair day or you got on the scale and you gained weight after a holiday. When someone tells you you look nice, you might say, well, my mirror needs to talk to your mirror or laugh it away or dodge it. I've talked before about needing to have a sponge in your soul so you can soak up the nice things that are said to you rather than allowing them to run off like water on glass. So <laughs> my metaphoric way of saying learn to accept compliments is to develop your own soul sponge. Let yourself absorb the positives others give you. Here's number four. You eliminate self-criticism and introduce self-compassion. Now, we've talked about self-compassion a lot here at Self Work. He suggests catching your self-critical inner monologue by asking yourself, what would you say to a good friend if they were in your situation? And we always tend to be more compassionate with others. Something I also stress is, would you teach your child or some child you cared about to do this, to say this to themselves? And if the answer is no, then why are you saying it to yourself? Remember, shame is a helpful emotion if it lasts for 10 seconds and leads to a change in behavior. Too much self-criticism 
is shaming yourself. And that simply isn't helpful, unless you change your behavior. Now, I did really agree with him on number five, but I'll say what he says. Affirm your real worth. He had developed this exercise, and he says it's been demonstrated, I bet it has been, to help revive self-esteem after it sustained a blow. He advises that you write yourself a paragraph essay on strengths that you think you have, maybe even though you didn't get the job or you were dumped by someone. I think this is good, and certainly I'm a huge believer in journaling, but I think this could be even more specific. What do I mean? There's a cognitive behavioral therapy principle where they advise not to think globally or too nonspecifically about disappointment or failure or painful events. Let's say you got dumped and what you tell yourself is, no one will ever love me. You didn't get the job and you say, I just don't know how to do a good interview. Obviously, you can hear that these are broad sweeping statements about yourself that are negative and painful. So you want to change that to more specific kinds of observations, such as about the breakup. He and I just weren't a good fit, and maybe he saw it before I did. And then about the job, you know, that wasn't my best interview. What do I need to remind myself of next time? So you stay curious and positive, and you stay specific. Now again, failures hurt, disappointments hurt. But if you start getting more specific in your thinking, you're not making these sweeping statements about yourself that are highly critical and negative and certainly do nothing for your self-esteem. So back when I was 33, I'm sure I used all of these methods and finally began to establish more of a sense of myself. I'm also happy to report that in almost exactly three months, I'll be celebrating my 30-year anniversary with a wonderful man. The chaos ended in my life when I learned how to like the self that I not only was, but wanted to become. And you can give yourself that same gift. Our listener email today is from someone who heard my interview on Dr. Corey Allen's Sexy Marriage Radio podcast. He says, I thought very quickly that you were describing my wife. This was on Perfectly Hidden Depression. We are going through tough times. I now have listened to your book and actually have a copy of it in paperback. A week ago, my question would simply have been, how does Perfectly Hidden Depression relate to attachment theory? I think my wife is avoidant. I'm pretty sure I'm anxious. Again, there's a link in your show notes about attachment theory. Listening to your book left me fairly sure that there must be a link, that avoidant people are the main group who would fall into perfectly hidden depression. There was also another sexy marriage radio interview which I found very significant. Corey Allen interviewed Melissa Orlov about ADHD in marriage. I immediately recognized myself in that interview and am now reaching the point of believing that I need to spend the money on a formal test for ADHD. I was also listening to her book, and realized she was describing something similar to perfectly hidden depression in the non-ADHD spouse's response to the typical troubles of living with a partner who experiences ADHD. That's kind of a mouthful. Basically, someone might identify with perfectly hidden depression who might be partnered with someone with ADHD. He goes on to say, No doubt an important question is one of scope, whether my wife exhibits perfectly hidden depression, 
beyond my marriage. It wasn't a great day when I told her I think she's avoidant, so I think I've learned my lesson and will not be informing her that I have diagnosed her with perfectly hidden depression. Remember, perfectly hidden depression is not a diagnosis, but he used that term. My wife simply will not participate in any form of therapy or analysis of our marriage, so I'm trying to understand this mess by myself and with a therapist. But is there any reading or listening I can do that would help me understand better the interactions between attachment, perfectly hidden depression, and ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? Thank you for your work and best wishes. Lots of really great questions in this email. So I say, your questions intrigued me, so I looked a bit into the literature and found this article on perfectionism and attachment theory that's quite interesting. Here's the quote that struck me the most. The child desperately wishes to conceal the fact that their real mind or the real mind of the child was never known by early caregivers. Perfectionism, then, could be framed as an attempt to keep attention away from the fact that this had happened, that the child's mind was never known, never reflected back to them by early caregivers. He used examples like, I had the best father in the whole world, or my mom never disappointed me. And you can hear, perhaps, the felt need to create a world where you were loved well, except you weren't. I thought this was a very interesting idea. I'm going to look more into attachment theory and perfectionism. I'm getting so many of these ideas from people I love it because I knew when I wrote the book that it was only the beginning. If you're interested in perfectionism and attachment theory, I do have the article I found in your show notes. And I continue with my answer. As far as a focusing issue, that's intriguing. I personally haven't found too much of that issue with the people I've interviewed. But since I'm not a researcher, then I have to rely on others for that kind of larger scope. If perfectly hidden depression is identifiable in your wife, then the approach can be tricky. You could try talking about your concerns about what you see and feel from her and then send her one of my podcasts or a blog post, simply something to plant a seed or two. What people have told me is that there's something about the term perfectly hidden depression that their gut responds to. So I hope she'll allow herself to let the info sink in. She's very lucky that you're concerned. I hope this helps and it helped me as well. I want to stress again how much I appreciate people writing in and telling me their thoughts and ideas about things that I did not cover in the book. There was a lot to cram into a little over 200 pages, and I very much appreciate the creativity and support that this email and others like it have shown me. I want to thank you all for being here. Your presence means so much to me and your word of mouth and telling your friends you are the best marketing tool I have and you're not a tool. (laughs) Well, certainly you're the boss where that's concerned. So thank you very, very much. And also for your reviews, we're getting close to 800 reviews on Apple Podcasts. That is fantastic. And if any of you are reading or have read Perfectly Hidden Depression, I would be so grateful for a written review. It can be a sentence or two. It can be anonymous, but it makes a difference. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe there where you'll get a weekly newsletter, including the weekly blog posts and this podcast. So it's a really easy way to keep in touch with me and to keep a little bit organized. Over on Instagram, I'm... Once again, doing my What I've Learned as a Therapist series, 
I had my first one today. And for the next 100 days or so, every day, I will try to put out there something that I've learned. It's kind of a fun series to do. Last time, I included a bunch of my own photographs, and (laughs) I'm not a photographer, so we shall see. But I'm just at Instagram.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford. The book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore, which you might want to give them some business these days. You can also purchase it from New Harbinger. Let me know if you do. I'd love to know how you experience it. I'm also going to do a series on IGTV about the exercises in the book because I'm finding that all these overly analytical people with perfectly hidden depression are skipping the exercises because they fear the emotion. So I'm going to try to lend a hand and some support. So catch me at IGTV on my Instagram. And one more way, I have a closed Facebook group. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Thank you again for being here. Please be safe and take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.